I mean, they're basically soccer hooligans, so, you know, yeah, chanting right. is yeah. a big part. <laughs> Episode of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and guys who use the phrase, well, actually, way too much. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Examine records from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We are going to give our general impressions, give a little bit of background on the artists leading up to the album, talk a bit about the recording, and at the end, vote and tell you whether or not you really do need to hear this album before you die. Now, I will warn everybody, if this is your first time listening to the show, we are going to complain about this album, and we're going to make fun of this album. We're going to make fun of this band. We love music. We're all musicians ourselves. We respect nothing more than people who put themselves out there. But there is a lot to make fun of, and there's a lot to nitpick at when it comes to any creative endeavor. So, it comes from a place of love, but there's definitely going to be some shit talked on this album. Now, if you have clicked on this link, you are probably aware we are listening to the album by the band Oasis. Their debut album called Definitely Maybe, released August 29th, 1994. To give you a little taste of what we have been listening to this week, we are going to play a snippet of the first song off of this album. It is the song Rock and Roll Star. Excellent, excellent. Now, by way of introduction, we are going to go around the room and give our tweet-length reviews, and I am throwing it first to Adam. Hey, so Tom, are you a well-actually or an um-actually kind of guy? Because I feel like there's two flavors there. Well, I'm a well-actually. I'm definitely that version of it. Okay, um-actually is a little more condescending, but <laughs> right up front, I'll apologize to our UK fans out there. Just boot up your email right now. 
start taking notes. Been a good run, guys. <laughs> this is Adam, by the way. And for my tweet today, I'm putting on my dad hat and echoing something that I'm assuming Noel and Liam's parents said to them many times, but something that equally applies to this album, which is, guys, I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right. We're throwing it over to Rob. Thanks, Tom. This is Rob here. My tweet length review for Definitely Maybe is layered, distorted guitars, a booming arena rock rhythm section, and big singable choruses. Notice how this description could be for almost any rock record ever made in any era. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think we're going to get a lot of emails. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, man. Yeah. Sorry, UK. It's been great having you. I'm sure there's plenty other podcasts out there for you. This is Tom. I was voted most curmudgeonly in high school, and it wasn't even close with the second place finisher. My tweet length review of Definitely Maybe. It's going to be a little bit more than the tweet length review. I'm sure you all remember that cartoon, The Far Side. Sure, sure. So this week, I did something a little unusual for me in that I read the reviews of the album before I listened to it. When I first put it on, I was reminded of that Far Side comic where there are two ragged guys. They're in a desert. They're obviously dying of thirst, but they're sitting at a water fountain and the water is running. And one guy says, let's just wait a minute and see if it gets any cooler. That was my experience hearing this album for the first time. Does that mean it's bad? Certainly not. But does that mean it is the most overhyped album we have covered so far? It definitely may be. <laughs> Excellent. Wow. Well done, sir. If you have made it this far, I applaud you. We're going to give our general impressions of the album. I think it's pretty clear from our tweet length reviews how our week went, but I am curious to get some more specifics. You know, let me just jump right in and say I think I do agree with your guys' tweet length reviews. Mine was actually a little snarkier than I truly feel. I do think it's a fun record. I enjoyed it just fine. It grew on me. You know, there's some fun rock music on here. And I found myself, most of the way through the week, I think I realized that it's a very immature record in a lot of senses. Oh, yeah. But that's not inherently yeah. a bad thing. And I kind of started then to cast my mind back to my 22-year-old self and allowed myself to enjoy it a little more thusly. I'm a sucker for that 90s and I'll call this pop rock. I know they consider themselves just straight ahead rock. I feel like this falls into pop rock, which is something I loved in the 90s. I, I equated this to, in America, the wallflowers or gin blossoms. It, and that's kind of was my frame of mind that I generally love this stuff. And I thought this album was okay, but I got to be missing something because I watched a documentary today Granted, it was everybody from Oasis talking about how amazing this album was. And I just kept thinking, like, maybe I don't understand them because of the accents or I just I'm missing something. I don't know. And as per usual, I'm coming here really excited to hear more about the context. I think it must have a lot to do with the context of what music was on the radio at the time and what the British music buying public were really excited to hear some kind of throwback to rock music. So I assume that's a piece of this story but ultimately even though i did enjoy it yes i agree i found it a little disappointing i thought for being whatever its accolade is that it's the fastest selling debut record in uk history or something like this i thought it was going to be more obviously great and i did not find it so yeah i will very much echo your 
immature comment in that I feel like some of these songs are half-baked and their later stuff, they embraced the melodic sensibilities that I like a lot more. This one, a lot of the songs seemed like Liam was not really given a super solid melody to sing and they shine at their best when they have really great melodies but some of these songs just didn't and frankly when he doesn't have a great melody I cannot stand his voice it is very nasally and very whiny when he's not given the appropriate direction but if he's just hanging on one note for a while and trying to spice that up a little bit, the spice just ends up being, yeah, yeah, again, we're dropping listeners from the UK by the second. (laughs) Yeah. You bring up another great point, Tom, which is I wasn't familiar with this record, but I was familiar with the follow-up, the one with champagne supernova on it. What's the story morning glory. Yes. And I truly think that is a great rock record. And I think they're writing now. I know after listening to definitely maybe this week that they're writing matured, you know, the songwriting feels a lot tighter there melodically, like you said. And so these are all the reasons that it's just a little disappointing. It doesn't mean it's bad. It's just a little bit of a come down from what I was hoping to receive. And can we just get it out of the way now? What is with the Beatles comps on this band? It doesn't have anything to do with sound, right? I think it's look and certainly not attitude because I don't ever get the sense that the Beatles were like, everybody else fucking sucks and we are the best <laughs> band in the world. But goddamn, every interview with them, we're talking before this album came out. They were like, our songs are timeless. They're going to be sold forever. People will be yeah. talking about us until the end of music. And you're like, I don't understand where that hubris came from with this output. Again, I don't think that they're a bad band, but this output did not live up to the hype. I saw this album described as the UK's Nevermind, and I don't get it. I really do not get that. I think the Beatles thing, I wonder if they planted the seed in the music press in the UK, because all Noel talked about in, in the interviews that I saw about this album, he just kept talking about the Beatles, kept talking about the Beatles, how they would play... I'm the Walrus live, and that they, they used to crush that tune. And while they were recording this album, I think they had Revolver. I think it was Revolver. He said they were just listening to it on repeat for weeks at a time as they were you know, writing and recording this album. So maybe they planted the seed in everybody's minds that they are comparable to the Beatles. I was genuinely confused by that comp musically. I don't hear very many similarities at all, other than that it's pop music and and in general, you know, reasonably well-crafted pop music. Maybe, though, charitably, it's the being at the forefront of a new wave of British music. I mean, this goes against them talking about it in interviews and talking themselves up. Yeah. But I think retrospectively, the Beatles brought, they kicked off the British invasion and Oasis sort of kicked off this Britpop revival of rock music in the UK. That's that's the best comparison I can draw. And to go back to something that when we did the Black Crows episode, Alan, who's another host on the show, is not here today, but he made a joke about two brothers who hate each other and play rock and roll music, and he referenced Oasis when talking about the Black Crows. Maybe there's like a, a country or like a, a UK versus US thing where I, I know we ultimately said no to the Black Crows, but the Black Crows were reinvigorating American roots rock and roll at the time and similarly 
Oasis was reinvigorating the UK rock scene. But is that accurate? Because I got to say, Blur had put out three albums before this album came out. They had Uh. already put out Leisure in 91, Modern Life is Rubbish in 93, and Park Life a good five months before this in 94. Oh, dang. I didn't realize they had that big a head start on them. Yeah. Where is the like, oh, my God, these guys were the, the tip of the spear. And then there's the whole they were in like a chart battle with Blur. That I they they won. Oasis won that chart battle. But I gotta tell you, I think Blur stuff is better. I like those Blur albums more than I like this. Well, can I give Oasis a compliment? I do think they're good at making melodies in quotes singable. It's this idea of long held notes without tons of melodic movement and in a range that most drunk people can manage. <laughs> do you know what i mean I, i'm yeah. i don't I, totally, i'm not trying yeah. to be backhanded about it i actually think they're they're really good at it all these even the dumber lyrics and even the less great melodies all seem like stuff i could imagine singing at karaoke i will say one of my recurring thoughts listening to this album was this is probably pretty great live oh definitely it didn't translate as well to the album but again we've talked about this before it's incredibly hard to get that live feel on an album, especially when you are not experienced in the studio and you're kind of coming in and just giving it your first try, or as we'll talk about with this album, maybe your second try to get (laughs) the actual sound that you want on the tapes. It's difficult, but the kernels were there for a fun drunken party song. Totally. And I think some of the songs do achieve that live feel. And those are the ones I like the best. So it's it's a good note, Tom. I also wanted to give him one more compliment, which I do sense listening to this, that there is a strong underlying understanding of the rock canon in the writing and the arrangements, even in the sequencing. It just, I can tell they listened to a lot of classic rock albums throughout time and had those as reference points. And I just want to give them some points for that. Yeah, I'm coming in more harsh than I would have if I had not had outsized expectations rolling into this. So I will agree with you, Rob. They are clearly students of music in terms of the understanding of British rock and roll and American rock and roll, I am sure, too. And the songs are not bad. I I don't want to give the impression that I hate these songs or anything like that. Sure. And I don't want to give the impression that I hate Liam Gallagher's voice. I certainly don't. I think that it is not utilized its best on this album. But we're going to get into maybe some of the reasons why they had some of these issues leading into this album. But first, we are going to touch on our By the Numbers for Oasis. And they do have another album on the list. The previously mentioned What's the Story Morning Glory is also on the list. So we're going to just do a few. We don't want to suck all the numbers out for the next time we have to cover this. You mean Hoover them up? For our UK audience. <laughs> yes, yes. Good. I'm hoping you could drop more Britishisms in. Yeah, I, I will do my best. Yes. <laughs> so, the first number I'm going to throw out is 2.4 million, which is the number of copies that definitely may be sold in the UK alone. So, it sold a million copies in the US and it went platinum here, but 2.4 million is eight times platinum in the UK. <laughs> And also, just to give you a little bit of context, okay, the UK has a population of 67 million. The US has a population of 332 million. 
So 2.4 million copies in the UK is the equivalent of 11 million copies in the US. Wow. That is how big they were in the UK. And you want to talk about sort of chart positioning and stuff like that. They hit number one in the UK. Number 58 in the US was the highest chart position for this album. So there was right. clearly some divide going on across the pond that yeah. people on this side were not privy to. It has been accredited to the U.S. was mired in its pessimistic grunge phase. And the U.K. was liking this more optimistic type of sound that they were going for. Because all in all, their lyrics are not super downer. I want to fucking kill myself, which is what a lot of that grunge stuff is if you listen close. Yeah, fell it's, on black days versus yeah. like, you know, a rock and roll star. That's a good point. I think this is definitely much more upbeat, much more let's have a great living your best life with the lads, you know, on a Saturday night yeah, kind of thing. Totally. Now, the next number I am going to throw out is 350,000. And that is the number of people that Oasis played in front of over the course of one week in 1996. They were wow. fucking wow. massive. Now, that does include two consecutive 125,000 person Nebworth shows over the course of two days. But that still means that they played for 100,000 more people over the course of that week. Wow. That's pretty damn big. And as much as I said, like, oh, you know, they this manufactured chart battle with Blur, Blur wasn't playing to that many people at that time or ever, <laughs> right. really. The proof is in the numbers, man. Yeah, you can't fake that. So the next number I'm going to put out there is fifth. As in, Oasis was said to be the fifth priority for bassist Paul McGuigan behind Cricket, Doctor Who, Weed, and Manchester City football. (laughs) This is at the height of their popularity. They're like, no, no, he will definitely like want to watch Doctor Who or like a Man City game as opposed to practice or work on the new album or anything like that. You just hit all the rest of the UK references I had saved up. You hit all all of them right there. So (laughs) So the next number I have is two, which is the number of Oasis hits that prominently feature the line, I said maybe, which I found to be just a little weird and distracting. I didn't think about the fact that I live forever. I said maybe, I don't. And then clearly Wonderwall. I mean, I don't know if I'm guessing Noel wrote maybe, and then Liam just came, I said maybe, with his sort of like affectation on maybe both of them. But mm, it was a little distracting, I gotta say. Yeah. I can't believe I didn't notice that until you just mentioned it. But that's, uh, yeah. Listen, they're not fans of writing more lyrics, Tom. That's for damn sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then at least once, which is the number of times that this band broke up before they even released their first album. The once that I am speaking of is a time where they were playing a show in San Francisco and Noel quit because Liam had gotten so drunk that he played like shit and then like started throwing stuff at him and Noel was like fuck this I quit (laughs) and then you know they got back together before the album was out but they were already popular enough to be playing in America so wow very clearly they they've had some turbulence and we will definitely get into that when we do our background but before we do quick plea to all of you people who are listening and made it this far and are ready to hear our spicy takes on Oasis. <laughs> if you could just rate and review, give us five stars, 
maybe also listen to a couple of other episodes that we do if this is your first time here and you're feeling a little salty about our takes. It'd be great to just get some feedback. You can write us at 1001 Album Complaints. We also have a Patreon. I would love if you could go over to the Patreon. We're going to keep giving you the same content every week. We're doing some bonus stuff for the Patreon, but if you like what we do and you want to buy us a beer or two, while we do all the research for this, because it does take a lot of time and a lot of beers, we certainly would appreciate it. We also got some merch links below for basically everything that I said. Now, let's go ahead and get to the background on Oasis. So, Oasis. Five members in the band. We have Liam and Noel Gallagher. Paul Arthurs on guitar, affectionately known as Bonehead. Paul McGuigan, <laughs> known as Gwigsy on bass, and Tony McCarroll on drums, who does not get a cool nickname. Basically, they get their start as a band called Rain, which is formed by Gwigsy, Arthurs, and McCarroll. They had another lead singer, this guy named Chris Hutton. He's promptly kicked out of the band, though, and replaced with Liam Gallagher. Now, Liam is described as very outgoing. He's like the class clown, show-off type. He also is the most popular kid in school and apparently the toughest kid in school. Really? So think about this for a second. You're this guy, Chris Hutton. You're in a band. You start a band with your friends. And then you get kicked out of your band for the most popular kid in school. (laughs) And then they become Oasis and make millions of fucking dollars. He's got to have such a drinking problem at this point. I can't imagine that he's just like a normal, well-adjusted dude. He's probably like working at a copy center, just like these fucking guys. They're playing, (laughs) you know, live forever over the sound system three times an hour in the 90s. He's like, I fucking hate you guys so much. Hey, there's a Beatles tie, right? Pete Best, same thing, you know, drummer before Ringo. So maybe there are some parallels. There we go. All right. So Liam is not particularly musical. He is, again, kind of a scrapper, kind of a... He's, he's an asshole. I'm not going to sure. <laughs> no kidding. He's an asshole. Right? Yeah. Couldn't tell. His reputation yeah. kind of precedes him. Yeah. So he describes an incident where kids from a rival school come over to their school to start shit, and he's outside smoking with his friends, and... A bunch of other kids from another school come over, and he's like, fuck you, kids. I will totally throw down with you. And one of the kids hits him in the head with a hammer and, like, splits his scalp open. Blood everywhere. Jesus. According to Liam, he says that from that day on, it is as if a switch went off in his head, and then he started hearing music. And that's what got him into music. He literally has credited this kid for, like, jarring something loose in his brain and (laughs) making him all of a sudden musical. How musical he is is up for debate, but that has been his claim. (laughs) So that's wild. Basically, these guys are like, hey, Liam, you should come be the singer in our band. You got the attitude. You got the swagger. You got the look. He dresses cool. He's got a cool haircut. He just seems like he was like the easy, popular kid. And by easy, I mean like everything came easy to him, popular kid, which, yeah, would have annoyed the shit out of me if I was a classmate of his, certainly. And he's like, great. I would love to join your band. I demand you change the name of the band, by the way. Because <laughs> he said that the band The Rain was a stupid name, a terrible name. It's got nothing on this great band name that I've been sitting on for a while, Oasis. Which, it's debatable. Which of those names is better? They're both yeah, right, fine. right. No, I think Oasis, Oasis is, is pretty cool. Better. 
yeah, I think he, I think it was a good call, but what a way to start your relationship with new bandmates. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Let me in your band. I'm calling all the shots. Who the hell are you? It's, a, it's what they call a power move. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely. Like, he's like, I'm fucking Liam Gallagher. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently the name Oasis came from a poster that he had in his room for this band, the In Spiral Carpets, which also speak of a name that is way worse than Oasis and the Rain. In Spiral Carpets is not a good band name. (laughs) So apparently they had, uh, he had a tour poster of theirs and it listed one of the venues on their tour as the Swindon Oasis. And he just thought that that seemed like, oh, Oasis, this name keeps popping up everywhere. Oasis, Oasis is great, great band name. As a connection, it turns out that the drum tech for the In Spiral Carpets, and probably the reason why he had the band poster on his wall, was none other than Liam's older brother, Noel Gallagher. So, Liam is five years younger than Noel. So, Noel is, at this point, actually out of the house. He's working. But, growing up, it had been Paul Gallagher, was the firstborn. And then you got Noel Gallagher, who's born a year after Paul. And then five and a half years later... Liam is born. So right from the start, their mom says that there was some animosity because <laughs> Liam went, Liam became like the baby, the charmer in the family. Everybody loved him. And Noel sure. went from being the loved baby to the afterthought middle child who then also had to share a room with his brother because they didn't have an extra room. And so he's sharing a room with somebody five and a half years younger than him. His older brother gets his own room. He's fucking pissed about it. And Basically, from the get-go, these kids are buttonheads all the time. And it makes a lot of sense because Noel is described as a loner. He's a recluse. He's always playing guitar. He's always writing. He's got a quote that says, Once I discovered weed and guitars and it got you into another world, why would I want to go out? Right? So you got these two very different personality types. You got Mr. Outgoing. I want to talk all the time. I need attention constantly. And Mr. Leave me the fuck alone. And they're crammed into this small room together. One of them significantly older than the other one. They're oil and water. Somebody described it as Noel's got a lot of buttons and Liam's got a lot of hands. And that was like the, you know, they're basically Liam just knows how to get under Noel's skin all the time. And Noel is very easy to annoy. So Noel is basically at this point, he is a guitar tech for the In Spiral Carpets. He's been super into music since he was young. And that is actually one of the things that the brothers shared. They both said that their favorite thing in the world was to go out, buy a new record, get a bag of weed, get completely ripped, and listen to it at full volume. And like That's my idea of heaven. That's my perfect weekend. I get a little bit of money in my pocket. I go out. I find a new record I've never heard of. I get super baked, and I just listen to it at full volume. I got to admit, that still sounds pretty good. I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> yeah. It's not terrible, right? It's, you know, I can see there, that being a good bonding experience for them. So, you know, they're not poor, but they're underclass. You know, their mom's working a bunch of jobs. They kind of said that their mom sort of raised them by themselves. Their dad was in the picture, but it doesn't sound like he was a great dad. He was, to preface this, they were both Irish Catholics who had moved to Manchester in the 60s. 
Okay. So, you know, basically his mom moves to Manchester in the 60s, meets his dad, and they start popping out. They pop out two kids within, like, two years of getting married. Or I think it's even, like, a year and a half of getting married. They have, like, two kids. It's, you know. And then a little while later they have their third kid. That ends up being the whole family, but their mom's working a bunch of jobs. They're definitely thinking about money a lot because they're just, you know, they're underclass. There are things that they want that they can't have. But Noel goes ahead and he gets a job working for the Inspiral Carpets as a drum tech. A job for oh, which he wait, is... hold on. Sorry. He's, is he a drum tech or a guitar tech? I think you've said both. Oh, did I say guitar tech earlier? I, I yeah. apologize. He, he was a drum tech. He was not yeah. a guitar tech. And the reason that I know that he was definitely a drum tech and not a guitar tech is because he has described that as a job that he was in no way qualified to do, was to be a drum tech. (laughs) (laughs) He basically bullshitted his way into being the drum tech for the Inspiral Carpets (laughs) and kind of like had no intention of ever being in a band. He played guitar for himself. He wrote songs, but he never played with other people. And it didn't really seem like the path that he was going to to pursue he gets the job as the drum tech for the inspiral carpets and you know they're a decently popular band he ends up touring with them he goes and tours in america a couple of times he goes to south america they go to japan like he's kind of living a cool lifestyle oh wow okay this was like when manchester was really popping musically right i even mean through the 80s the new order joy division club scene i think led into the happy mondays didn't they call it Madchester? You know, it was it was a whole scene. Like people kind of knew about it, at least, at least in the UK. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a, a a rich musical scene going on in Manchester. Manchester's a decently sized city too. It's not like it's some tiny little nowheresville or anything like that. It's a working class city, but there was definitely a, a good music scene going on in there. So he gets this job with the Inspiral Carpets, goes on tour with them. He ends up meeting Mark Coyle, who is the guitar tech on the tour. Mark Coyle was described as the unofficial sixth member of Oasis. He definitely ends up being integral to the creation of Definitely Maybe. What's funny is that according to Coyle, even the members of the Inspiral Carpets were afraid of Noel. And he was just <laughs> such an asshole and like such a not to be trifled with boss asshole guy, even though he's just a drum tech and he's not even qualified to be a drum tech. But right. they were all I was afraid of say, him. If he's... Hey, this guy keeps setting up my drums incorrectly. Can we fire him? No, no dude. Yeah. Well, no. he was no. eventually fired by them for being, quote, unprofessional and unapproachable, which I thought was a pretty great description of what it really sounds like he manifested in oasis so but this is because I, I kept getting the brothers confused in my mind this is the older brother this is the older brother Noel, who yes. at least in recent years seems like the more reasonable of the two i imagine they're both pretty unreasonable as it as the history will sure. show but but Noel is like the slightly more mature one right well he is and he was older and i feel like Noel also is more an, of an introspective kind of guy so he is probably more aware of his foibles and his issues whereas liam is just sort of a loud i've been able to blather my way through life so far and i'm just going to continue doing that until somebody calls me on my bullshit and oh wait now i'm worth like 70 million dollars so nobody's ever going to call me on my bullshit ever again i can do whatever i want (laughs) so it's actually quite fateful that noel is fired when he is because he returns home to manchester and he's like liam's in a band 
my fucking brother, this idiot that I've been in my room with, was no musical <laughs> talent whatsoever. That guy's in a band. What the fuck is going on here, mom? <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> he ends up going to see Oasis play. It's a local show in Manchester, and he's like, "Yeah, they're okay. I'm like, whatever. Nothing special. Nothing great. I think they're okay." And even they said that at the time, they just sort of had four songs that they were kind of just pounding their way through. Like, they weren't developing a whole lot as a band. But Liam's like, hey, Noel, you should be our manager. You got music connections. You got some cred, man. You've been in here. You can get us some great gigs. And Noel's like, fuck no. I'm not going to be your manager. What, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Again, he's kind of not really interested in the entire project until Liam says, hey, man. Why don't you just come and play with us? Just come and jam with us one time. And he goes to their rehearsal space and he starts playing with them and he's playing some of their songs and it's like, eh, whatever, whatever. And then Liam's like, hey, you should play one of the songs that you wrote. Teach it to us and we'll play it. And Noel describes that as like a transformative moment in his life. He had never heard anybody else play his songs. He'd never had a band with him uh-huh. playing his songs before. And he said, basically from that point on, he was like, this is what I want to do. For the rest of my life, this is an experience that, you know, there's not a whole lot of stuff in your life that lives up to the hype. But I got to say, the first time that you were ever like really solidly playing original music with a band and it's Something, coming yeah. together and it's feeling good, that lives up to the damn hype. That feels pretty fucking great. Agreed. Sure. So at that point, he's like, all right, I'm in. I want to join the band. Now, there are conflicting stories told by both brothers as to how this happened. (laughs) I don't believe it. (laughs) To hear Noel tell it, they asked him to join the band and they were kind of like, hey man, like, come on, please join our band. To hear Liam tell it, he says, Noel begged him to be in the band and he eventually (laughs) relented and said, fine, you can come join the band if you want. I'm going to do you a favor, you fucking scrub. You got nothing else going on in your life. (laughs) (laughs) They're both such assholes. assholes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, There's also the story that Noel says did not happen, that he came in and demanded that I'm going to be the band's leader. I'm going to write all the songs. I'm going to dictate all the parts. This is going to be my band. You're going to be playing my songs. Everybody else in the band says that that did happen. Noel says that did not happen. I'm going to guess that that probably did happen. (laughs) It it only works when you have the songs, though, by the way. That is true. Do you know what I mean? They didn't have to say yes to that, but if they liked his songs enough, then... We talked about it with Neil Young coming into CSN. Like, hey, man, he's worth it for the songs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You got 50 more of these? Yeah. All right. Come on. All your baggage aside, I guess I will take it. If only they could have had a crystal ball and looked into the future, they probably still would have taken that devil's bargain. But it's like, we're going to burn hot and we're going to burn out. And then we're going to never be able to have the same creative output that we ever had because these two guys just can't get along. Yeah. I think it was recently, I forget which one. I think it might have been Liam was talking shit on the 1975 about how they were just terrible and derivative and, you know, and the guy from the 1975, who I don't even particularly like, but his response was very level-headed. And he was like, yeah, that kind of sucks to hear. I loved Oasis growing up. They were one of my formative bands. And frankly, they could still be the biggest band in the world if those two brothers could just fucking get along for 20 minutes. (laughs) You could still be the biggest band in the goddamn (laughs) world, but you can't make it happen. So don't get angry at me because I'm the one out here doing it, which seems like a pretty reasonable approach to take. So, all right, late 1991. And... 
One of the things that is happening in Britain that is very popular is the sort of techno house scene at the time. It has become one of the more dominant forces in youth culture, certainly. Not necessarily on the charts, but the young, cool, hip kids, a lot of them were listening to techno music and basically the antithesis of the Oasis style of pop rock that wasn't cool with the kids the way that they really thought that it should be. There's also a lot of aging rock musicians cashing in your Phil's Colin, your Rod's Stewart, and all that stuff. You know? <laughs> I was just thinking that this was the antidote to the prodigy, which we also slammed many, many episodes ago. <laughs> well over 100 episodes ago, yeah. This is way better than The Prodigy, to be to be clear. To any listeners who might be doubting. Yes. Yeah, we, sure, sure. I, I can guarantee we all like this way more than that. Yes, absolutely. So Oasis basically sees it as their mission to reclaim the UK sound for this kind of classic rock and roll style. And they're playing around for a year, and it's kind of, you know, they're sort of playing some of these songs, and everything's going okay. And then... To hear Noel describe it, he writes the song Live Forever. So this is like 92 or something like that. He writes the song Live Forever. And he basically says that was the time that he was like, I get it. I get how to write the kind of songs that I want to write. And everything sort of started accelerating from there in terms of his creative output and the songs that he started writing. And I will 100% agree. Live Forever is a very well-written very well-constructed song. That's a good fucking pop song. And that was the one that, again, got that creative spark going in him, which led to him writing the songs that ended up on Definitely Maybe and I think reached their apex in What's the Story, Morning Glory. But we're going to move on from here. They are basically getting more and more shows, but they're not getting any press whatsoever. They have said that, like, nobody even said that we sucked. We couldn't get a single line written about us in any of the UK press. I love that you're so desperate that you'll even take a review that says these guys blow, because at least you see your name in print. Exactly. Somebody saw your show. You know that somebody who is somewhat of a tastemaker says that, you know, they saw your show. But they're getting completely ignored. They're totally underground. They're not making any real money. They're kind of struggling, but they are playing they're liking being in a band. Liam and Noel are fighting. Surprise, surprise. But it's not crazy fighting. It's more the shut the fuck up, I'm talking kind of fighting, and less the I want to murder you and I'm going to destroy this project kind of fighting. Brotherly bickering, we'll say. Listen, we've talked about it before. Bands fight. It's tense. It's expected because you're putting your, you're making yourself vulnerable out there on stage or possibly through your writing or in all ways. And you really want to get to this next level, even if you haven't defined what it is. And it's just very personal. And you're also like young. So emotions are just running high. Generally. I'm just saying band fighting is the norm. That's all. Sure. I will say it certainly did not help that Noel is the one out there writing all these songs, exposing himself through lyrics, being more personal, even though I don't think these lyrics are deeply personal, but all lyrics are personal in a way. And the quote from Liam is, I didn't get really involved in the whole music thing. That's kind of Noel's thing. You do that, and I'll just be cool as fuck over here. <laughs> that was his attitude, <laughs> which is like, how about you do all the work, and I'll just be the fucking cool guy, right? That should work. And I'll get all the girls. Yeah, I can't see why 
they clashed at any point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Noel's writing songs, Oasis is producing, performing these songs. They're not getting any real traction. Like most bands, they are, again, poor. And so they're sharing a rehearsal space with another band who happens to be an all-girl band called Sister Lovers. And Sister Lovers, again, Manchester band, they get a gig in Glasgow at King Tut's Wawa Hut Club. What, what the fuck name is that? <laughs> Whatever. Okay. I mean, you take what you can get. Take what you can get. Well, <laughs> according to them, they were like, we got a gig outside of Manchester. That's big. Like, we're feeling great. Big deal. Yeah, sure. And Liam's immediate reaction is like, why the fuck did you get that gig and we didn't get that gig? We're better than you. We should get that gig. Fuck you guys. And I don't know if this is like a woman thing or if these are just the nicest people in the world, but they were like, well, how about you come on up and play with us? Just come on up. Come up and play with us. And so Oasis, of course, like, yeah, totally. We're going to come and play. I'm fucking blow you out of the water. Right, exactly. <laughs> Name your destructor. They rent a van with a plan of driving up, playing the gig, getting completely shit-faced, sleeping in the van, and driving back home the next day. And they get up there. They're, of course, getting fucking ripped the entire drive up there. They get to the club, and the guy at the club is like, you're not on the bill. You're not coming in. (laughs) You're not bringing your shit in. You're not playing here tonight, man. I don't know what to tell you. Who are you? Seriously, he's like, I don't know who you are. I've never read about you. There's no press about you. (laughs) You tell me that you're some fucking band. You're not on the bill. And in, again, an amazing show of solidarity, the sister lovers say, well, we're not going to play if you don't let Oasis play. How about we'll give them half of our time? We'll play five songs. They can play four songs. Does that work? And the guy's like, whatever. I don't fucking care. I'm a doorman at a club. I don't really give a shit. As Rob and I have experienced many times, like the people that book gigs and manage these clubs are completely checked out from moment one. It's kind of ridiculous. So true. So anyway, they get to play. They've been playing around for a couple of years. You know, they've they've been playing gigs. They're not an inexperienced band. They're not wowed by this gig in Glasgow. They sort of were just like, what's our fucking do? Because if these stupid bitches can get it, like, why can't we? <laughs> and so they played their four songs and they're kind of like, yeah, all right, whatever. Unbeknownst to them, the bassist for Sister Lovers, Debbie Turner, is the ex-girlfriend of Alan McGee, who is the head of of the ultra-hip UK indie label, Creation. Of course. (laughs) Now, Alan said that he showed up to the gig to fuck with his ex-girlfriend, to basically make her nervous. And hopefully they would not perform well. It it was not an act of love or support or anything like that. He just kind of shows up to the gig to be a dick. And he sees Oasis play, and he's like, He said after the first song, he was there with his younger sister. He said after the first song, his sister said, you should sign this band. After the second song, he said, yeah, I think I should sign this band. After the third song, he said, I'm going to sign this band tonight. And he ends up going over to Noel afterwards. And he says, hey, do you want a record deal? And Noel says, with who? He says, with Creation Records. He says, fuck yeah, I want to deal with Creation Records because Creation Records they actually have a lot of cred. Did he offer him the contract with an earshot of the girlfriend? So maybe it's all just to screw, <laughs> just to really stick it to her. Hey, do you want to? 
Well, I mean, honestly, the best financial decision he ever made from spite, if that's the yeah, case. Right. <laughs> Very true. So creation, they have a lot of cred. They are not uber successful in terms of financially successful, but they have released for bands like the Jesus and Mary Chain, My Bloody Valentine, Primal Scream, Teenage Fan Club, and my favorite meat whiplash (laughs) (laughs) i have never heard them before but i have to give them credit that's a great name meat whiplash is fantastic rob please put one meat whiplash song on the playlist this week will do (laughs) done and done so basically he approaches noel says you want a record deal noel says yeah we want a record deal now there was some stuff that prevented them from actually signing it for a couple of months but everybody was right in from the get-go they're like yes we're all in. We want to make this happen. So it's December of 1993, and they get a recording set up by Alan McGee, and they want to get their first few songs recorded. And the session is not going well. It's going very rough. Now, to hear Noel tell it, it's the drummer's fault. Basically, he said the drummer is not consistently keeping time. He's shit. That's why we couldn't get a good recording out of this recording. Needed to hire a drum tech. <laughs> Honestly, it's just their first time in the studio. I'm sure that they have no idea what they're doing. I'm sure that it's different. It's way different from playing on stage. Playing in the studio is just a different animal, and they probably just picked the quietest and least assuming guy in the band and were like, it's your fault, motherfucker. (laughs) Well, it's also the hardest on the drummer, right? They're under, in a way, they're under the most scrutiny to get the take, as we all know. I know they were doing less overdubbing, in these days, and I think, yeah, I think Oasis' stated goal was to kind of not overdub and just record the live band. But in general, the drummer has the hardest job in the studio, I would say. Yeah, nobody ever tells the guitar player, you should play to a melodic track of all the notes that you're supposed to be hitting in your headphones. But they tell the drummer, play to a click track all the time. Like You have to be right on the beat on the click track, which makes sense. If the rhythm is off and the timing is off, it's the drummer's fault, and it is noticeable even to people who don't really know music. But either way, session's going really bad, and Noel's getting really frustrated, and they basically are like, we're going to take a break. Let's just walk away from it for a little bit before we kill each other. And Noel has been kicking around this riff for a little bit, and he, while the other guys are on break, he writes the song Supersonic right then and there in the studio. They come back in, and he's like, hey, fuck what we were doing before. I have a brand new song. We're going to learn it right now, and we're going to record it, which is a, usually a recipe for disaster when you're in the studio. Works out great. They record Supersonic. It ends up becoming a signature Oasis song. Good on them. Supersonic is released as a single in April of 1994. Remember, definitely Maybe isn't released until August of 1994, so they oh, pre-release okay. it as a single. All right. It's a hit. Reaches number 31 on the singles charts. Finally, they're getting press. Finally, they're getting better gigs. And, you know, basically people are singing their songs back to them when they're playing live. Like before we were playing like kind of small shows. Nobody was really given all that much of a shit. We're, you know, getting a little bit more following, a little bit more of a following. But once Supersonic hit, it was like they were like a real quote unquote real band that had real fans that showed up to see them because they wanted to see them play this one song that they knew from them. I feel like that also has to be a transformative moment. You talked earlier about how hearing your song come to life with a band. Imagine also then having your song 
being sung back to you by strangers. I feel like that also is like another step up in your creative and, and your band career. It's got to be wild. Unfortunately, Adam, I will have to just imagine that. Same, same I've here, never same experienced here. it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that time, Tom, we were in Lodi and it was like small town, nice people energy and they were slow dancing to our songs we like we've never, what is going on right now we've never seen yeah. anything like this yeah they were really into it and then we then proceeded to take a set break and they told us it was an open bar and we got absolutely fucking destroyed and it completely <laughs> blew the second set in a way that was shameful and by we i mean everybody but rob because rob was sober at the time and the most pissed off i think i've seen him in years it was a big it was a big shift yeah we built up a lot of goodwill and we tore it all back down <laughs> yeah i remember at the end of that show just i was playing drums at the time just like like head and hands just like oh my god i'm gonna throw up on my fucking drum set <laughs> so bad oh my god that well, they great. also were like, oh, these guys are boozing hard. Let's send them shots up on stage and stuff. And we're like, yeah, all right. <laughs> not a good idea. Definitely oh, not a man. good idea. Anyway, we are going to flashback, though, to December of 93. All right. So th they released Supersonic as a single in April 94. It starts doing well. But we're going to go back to December of 93. They had already had that one recording session that really did not go well. But it did yield Supersonic. So... They get another recording session at Mono Valley Studios in Wales. And this time, it goes terribly. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, they're like, they record the whole album. They record the entirety of the album minus Supersonic. And they send it to Alan McGee. He's like, this sounds terrible. This doesn't sound like you as a band. Like, what's going on here? And I have heard a little bit of the recordings there and they sound hollow and they sound underproduced and they sound scared. They sound scared mm. in the studio. They're okay. tentative, hesitant, and a lot of Oasis is energy. And yeah. it's just not there. Yeah, and swagger. Yeah. yeah. I heard an interview with Noel that said, in the studio when they were listening to, you know, the daily playbacks, they had, you know, speakers that were the size of a house. So, of course, everything sounds awesome. But then they were taking them and listening to them in their car. And they were like, this doesn't sound like us. This sounds like another band. And that's what everybody said. It doesn't sound like you. I've seen you live. This is not you. What is going on with it? And I'm going to go ahead and give Alan McGee a lot of credit here because this never happens. Creation Records is not doing well financially. He has paid 800 pounds a day for this recording studio in Mono, in Mono Valley in Wales to record this album. They record the whole album. And they send it to him and he says, you need to re-record this entire album. I will go out of pocket for you to re-record this entire album. This is not going to do it. This doesn't work. Because his name's attached to it as well, I suppose. I, he just believed in the band. Okay. He's like, you can be a successful band. You can have hits, but this ain't it. Right. Okay. And so he goes farther out of pocket to get them to re-record again. It's tough. It's tough because, like you said, the recording studio is so different than the live audience place. And to try to bring that energy to the studio can be really, really challenging. So no matter how much you might believe in the band, you also have to believe they can do that within reason reasonable amount of time and there's definitely no guarantee that's going to happen yeah like it's you know you're in a 
it's like you're in a surgical theater in the sterile environment versus the club where you're getting all this feedback and natural energy coming at you. And it's, yeah, it's just, they're really different beasts, like you said, Tom. Yeah. Well, there's nothing to paper over mistakes in the studio. Live energy papers over a ton of mistakes. Sure. And again, I'm going to give Alan McGee a lot of credit because even Noel said, well, how about we just release it as it is? We'll fix it on the next album. And he's like, you're not going to get a next album if you release this. So you can't do it. You have to re-record it. They book another recording session at Sawmill Studios. They fire the previous producer. They re-record the entire album with Noel taking a much larger role in the production and Noel's friend from his drum tech days, Mark Coyle, stepping in as a producer as well. So that is where you get the tracks recorded for Definitely Maybe. I read that they thought that first version was kind of classic production style where you're trying to isolate everything and make the sounds really clean. And that was the, the one of the big shifts they made, right? It was not worrying about bleed, like putting all the amplifiers in the same room kind of vibe and really trying to capture the live take directly. Yes, and the bandness of it. And you do lose a lot of that band feel when you got a guitar player in another room that sometimes you can't even see playing and the drummer is walled off somewhere sometimes with foam padding and baffling around him sure. you can't see him it is very isolating and they do it more kind of big room sound everybody in one big ass room let's just get a good sound out of it and so they record it mark coyle does the mixing he's been integral in the production of the album He's a sound engineer as well. He had done live sound for them. So their whole thing was like, well, who does our live sound? Who's running the board at our live show? It's Mark Coyle. Mark Coyle should be the guy that mixes the album. Mark Coyle mixes the album, send it to Alan McGee, and he says, nope, it's not it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is twice in a row that he has said, this is not the product that you're going to put out. I don't <sighs> think that this is good enough. Again, I'm giving him a lot of credit for that. I'm glad that he's made a lot of money off of it. I don't think that he gets enough credit for pushing them. Again, because I don't think a lot of record labels do. That's one of the reasons why you want to go with a smaller indie record label. Capitol Records can take a loss on 50 albums. They don't give a shit. I'm like, whatever, right. whatever. He was really like, if this hits, I will be set for life. This will be a major change in my record label's fortunes. This is a big deal. And I'm treating it like a big deal. And most of the time, it's only the band that's treating it like a big deal. It's a big deal for me. But for the record label, they're like, whatever. I got 50 deals out here that may or may not happen. They're sort of doing the quantity over quality approach. Sure. Yeah. And I'll, I mean, and to go with that, I think small labels, I think good label heads believe in trends almost more than they believe in individual bands. But if you're a small label, you don't, you know, Capitol Records can have five bands that are playing to the same musical trend and hope that one hits, you know? Absolutely. And again, going back to when Alan McGee first saw them, I think the quote was that there were six people at the place and he and his sister were two of them. He had an experience and he was like, this is a great band. This band moved me. I want to get that. I want to capture that. He knew what he was trying to capture. And again, the band thought that the the mixing was okay. They're like, I, I think it's pretty good. They don't really know. Alan McGee, again, says, I'm going to go out of pocket again, and I'm going to get this guy Owen Morris to do a mix. And 
it overnight transforms the album. Apparently, there had been some new technology that allowed you to push the signal digitally without oh, distorting. The brick wall. They were calling it the, the brick wall processing. Yeah. So, And he knew his stuff. He was a, a, an accomplished producer. And so he does a mix. And everybody's just like, holy shit, that's it. Like, that's the sound that we're going for. We have not heard it before on a recording. That's it. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so the brick wall, you mean like everything's compressed and loud at the same time, right? Everything's taken up. There's nuance, but the signal itself is pushed as far to what they call the brick wall, which I don't know, zero decibels or something. But that in terms of everything else, he said that when you would hear it on the radio or wherever you hear it, Oasis was louder than everything else. So it <laughs> stuck out. I saw someone write, I'm sure this is a related point, that this is pretty early in the CD era as well. And I think CDs played well with that technology that you're talking about, that kind of extra compressed, high fidelity, loud signal. So I just, I, I do feel like that's a hallmark. In my mind, that's a hallmark of CDs themselves, but I guess it was just the era. Well, and the fidelity is important because CDs are ultra high fidelity. It's a laser reading a disc. It's not magnetic tape running through heads that could be dirty. There's all kinds of room for distortions and signal fuck-ups in tapes, in records, CDs, there's not the fidelity of the signal from the disc, unless the disc is really fucked up, it's laser to reading the disc. There's not a whole lot of room for mistakes there. It's funny. Of course, I know that a good mix and a, an important professional mix can make a huge difference. We know that from our own recordings. And I don't think mixers get enough credit generally right but at the same time i feel like the rule that you and i have been going off of tom which seems pretty good is if the songs aren't good without it being mixed yet they're not going to get good in the mix so i'm I'm like slightly surprised but it, it, i guess it somewhat makes sense i think it could have just been a an intensity because I, I think the kernels of the songs are generally good I, they're not mind-blowing but they're generally good but presentation does matter on the borderline if it's borderline between a, an okay song and a good song and a good presentation makes it sound like a good song. I suppose you could argue, too, the style is kind of wall of sound, especially with the guitars. There's a fair amount of layering, distorted, washy guitars. And I was maybe more attributing that to them all playing in the room together. But really, that is a function of how the mixer can balance those things and kind of make you hear them simultaneously. Without being muddy, too, because that's another thing. You can't just turn everything up. Because then it's just, it, right. it's like adding every color to the palette. It just becomes brown. You know, you have to get the differences in the sounds. You have to scoop out some of the mids to make other things approach, like right. pop out. And so, yeah, good for them. I'm glad that they got the product that they wanted. And it sounds like it was a very onerous process. And on several occasions, Noel was just like, I fucking quit. I'm throwing my hands up. I don't know what to do. And Liam was just like, I don't give a shit. I'm just macking on these ladies over here, and I'm already drunk, and it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and whatever, <laughs> pussy with your fucking songs. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to jump forward in time a little bit. They've already released Supersonic. It's a hit. Supersonic's released in April of 94. They have the recording for Definitely Maybe. They're releasing singles before the, the album is out, though. So this is kind of a... An approach that I don't think was all that common, or I didn't think of it as that common. I thought you released the album, and then you released the single. And then maybe you released the single like a week before the album, but not 
six months before the album. So they have a single release in April. They release Shaker Maker in June 1994. And what, number 31 was Supersonic? Shaker Maker makes it into the top 20. Damn. Now I have a question for you. Can you identify which song they ripped off yep, for this? I can. Okay, good. That was immediately. <laughs> I was like, yes. I like to teach <laughs> the world to sing. Yeah, they got sued for that, and they lost. By Coca-Cola, right? I'd like to give the world a Coke was what had popularized it. They bought the rights to that song. Uh, so, yeah. There it is, yep. So, yeah, they got sued, lost half a million bucks for that, but oh. you know, that comes a little bit later. So, basically, they have two charting singles they haven't even released an album yet they're getting like a lot of press they're getting a lot of attention and being the level-headed down-to-earth lads that they are they did not let fame go to their heads they are remarked as unusually polite and civil for such a young band getting their first taste of success i am of course kidding <laughs> they immediately become raging party animal assholes who are notorious for trashing hotel rooms yeah which actually notably noel says he never participated in because he said it seemed like too much work he's like you're breaking a sweat while you're breaking a hotel room why the fuck are you doing why? that it seems like a lot of effort man yeah like, right I'm not doing that but they're also super drunk and constantly getting into fights with random people and each other they are getting written up by the tabloids all the time now they are like tabloid fodder because they went from getting completely ignored by the press to basically being the target of these crazy debaucherous stories about new rock and roll it's a throwback to the 70s they were basically like we're like led zeppelin we're doing terrible things to women probably i don't right. actually, i don't actually have a whole lot of <laughs> evidence that there were stories about them doing terrible things to women it's more that they were just being raging drunken assholes but they were enjoying themselves we'll say enjoying yeah. themselves and you know yes they do sound like complete dicks because they haven't even released an album at this point this is just from the two singles two oh singles God, fake it till you make it pump the brakes fellas so Liam is 21 at this time. Gwigsy and McCarroll are 23. Noel is 26. Paul Arthurs is 29 at this point, but he also has the nickname of Bonehead. So I'm guessing he wasn't the like voice of reason here or anything like that. And it does sound like he was an enthusiastic participant in the hotel trashing and all the other shit that went on. So... It's also not exactly right to say that the fighting between Noel and Liam ratchets up at this point. I just think that the stakes get higher for these fights. They've always fought. Honestly, there was footage of them from right when Noel had joined. They hadn't done anything. They hadn't recorded anything. They didn't have a record contract or anything like that. And they're in their recording studio. And Noel is talking. And Liam just keeps interrupting him. And Noel's like, shut the fuck up like they're so pissed off at his brother and i could totally tell why because liam was just like oh there's a little i'm just gonna eh, poke at that <laughs> poke at that poke at that yeah there we go that's the reaction i want i noticed they really don't disappoint in interviews because i i saw that too at a really early interview <laughs> where the interviewer was like so your brother older brother joined the band and took over all the songwriting and liam's like well, yeah, but he didn't take over me. He's not the boss of me. Like, <laughs> right away. <laughs> yeah. No, there was a there was another great interview where it's Liam and Noel, and the interviewer asked Liam a question, and Liam kind of like 
gets a thoughtful look on his face and he's about to talk and Noel just goes, takes a long time to respond, doesn't he? Like right when he's about to say <laughs> something, it leaves like, oh, fucking, uh, yeah, all right. God damn it. I took a beat to answer a question here. There's also a great interview. Oh my God, it's a clip. It's just Noel being interviewed. And the interviewer is like, would you say it's safe to say that all of the other members of Oasis are expendable except for you and Liam? And he's like, oh no, Liam's expendable. <laughs> that's awesome that is also the most like british thing to say as well that yeah. dry sense of humor whether or not he was yeah. serious but that's hilarious yeah that's great dude so i have one story <laughs> that just goes to their like overall level of debauchery which is fucking hilarious all right so y'all remember that band the verve they're the yes. bittersweet symphony band right or they uh, yeah. yeah yeah the bittersweet yeah, symphony that's right band. Yes. right not the verve pipe also right. sued. i believe it was Closing time. Oh, were they also sued? Okay, good. By the Rolling Stones. Oh, yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about the Verb Pipe was also sued. Yes, the Verb was clearly sued by the Rolling Stones, but yes. So they get a gig opening up for the Verb in Amsterdam. It's the first international gig that they're ever going to play. And they're like, this is great. We're like on our way. Our record label has hooked us up with this great gig. They get on the ferry to go over to Amsterdam. And over the course of the evening... Everybody but Noel gets arrested on the ferry. What? <laughs> wow. And they're not allowed in the country because oh apparently there was a casino there and there were a bunch of guys who were fans of a rival football club. And oh. it just turned into a fight. At one point, apparently Liam just like ran by a roulette table and just like threw all the money off the table <laughs> as he's running down. And they all got arrested and were not allowed in the country. And Noel had to call them up and be like... Noel called up, again, Alan McGee, the guy who got them the gig, head of the record label. And Alan McGee was like, oh, that's fucking awesome. <laughs> he was not phased by it at all. He's like, that's fucking rock and roll, man. That's punk rock. It's going to be great. You're going to get written about, and it be, they become a huge story. Oh, these crazy lads can't even make it on an overnight ferry before they get arrested. I mean, that's the other thing. Between that and the perhaps manufactured, perhaps real rivalry with Blur, they were able to capture press attention consistently. And I, yeah. you know what I mean? Even though it seems like they leveraged their naturally douchey personalities to do that, <laughs> but it was somewhat manufactured, right? I think that the, the stuff with Blur absolutely manufactured even they were like we have this supposed rivalry like i don't fucking care we're both selling albums who gives a shit i like blur i think that the personality of them i don't think that that was manufactured i think that they were doing a whole bunch of crazy shit i think that they were getting arrested and yeah. i think that the record label was like i could send a minder after you to rein you in instead i'm going to hire a driver who also gets arrested with you on the <laughs> drive on the, <laughs> over to amsterdam like right. yeah Right. Fantastic. I yeah, I more meant that that was another Beatles comp because of the Rolling Stones versus Beatles mm, thing when in fact yeah, they were hanging yeah. out and they were friends. Yeah. Totally, right. Totally. All right. So that basically gets us up to the release of Definitely Maybe. They have all this hype, all this buzz coming up to the release of their album. They're getting written about in the tabloids all the time. They got a couple of hit singles. They end up releasing Live Forever a couple of weeks before Definitely Maybe is officially released. And how, you ask, was it received? Immediately hailed as a classic album of the 90s. As Rob mentioned, fastest selling debut album in UK history at wow. the time. Went to number one in the UK charts. Only 58 on the US charts, but number one in the UK charts. In 1997, 
in a poll, so this wasn't critics, but it was just like a fan poll. It was named the 14th best album of all time. Really? Not true. Right. It's not true. I'm sorry. It's not <laughs> Demonstrably true. Demonstrably false, yeah. even though it's an opinion. Yes. It, it is Also, it is considered a landmark album of UK rock. So, in case you are not familiar with this album, let's dive into the songs. We're finally there at the songs. Let's people. do it. Appreciate the Pumped. patience. The first song we are going to revisit is the opening track, their message to the world, the song Rock and Roll Star. say you lads i mean it's fine the transition to three at the end is kind of cool i guess you know i get bumped by the fact that they never write second verses that they just repeat verse number one two or three more times i know they're not a lyrics band i know that's what you're gonna write into us lads (laughs) but not what it's about it's not what it's about man i get it but it still still does come off as lazy and especially when most of your lyrics are kind of nonsensical anyway you know what I mean? You're emphasizing that point by repeating them again and again. But anyway, I think this is a mostly a successful song. I feel like somewhat neutral about it. It got me excited for the album, and I talked about being disappointed. So when I turned it on, I was thinking, hey, all right, it's a pretty good opener. It's a pretty good mission statement. I thought it was a little cocky that they have a song preaching about how they're rock stars, but I wonder when this was written. Because if they did write and release those two singles and became rock stars and then they finished the album, maybe you get a little more. No, no, no. Written before those singles were released. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Recorded right, before right. those season- singles were released. Yes. Okay, now I'm going to jump in and defend them, though, because that sounds a lot like something we would have done in our old band, The Chop. I mean, I do believe in the <laughs> fake it till you make it aesthetic. Yeah, sure, sure. I like the idea that they're being brazen, at least in their writing. I don't really approve of you know, braggadocio in your real life. But when it comes to writing and stage persona, I think it's necessary. Go for it. Right, right. I don't have a problem with this as a mission statement for the band. I just think the song's underbaked. And the fact that it is a little underbaked, especially melodically, highlights Liam's failings as a singer 
and his super nasally voice and his bizarre pronunciation. Why does he say Shein for sun Shein? <laughs> yes. I don't understand that. Is that some because he says shine later normally? Right, right. It's an underdeveloped melody. Like, don't look back in anger. It's a banger. It's a great song. Also sung by Noel, not sung by Liam, but that oh, has didn't a. Know that. I, f- I found that out because I was like, there's no way that he sounds this. Yeah, it's sung by Noel, not sung by Liam. Hmm. That's why everybody's expendable except for Noel, apparently. But that is a really strong melody. It's over meandering chords. It's intentional. And especially the kind of pre-chorus part of this song, it feels underbaked. It's like... Yeah. It's the equivalent. The chords are the equivalent of rock beat one on the drum kit. Yes. Sure, yes. it's pretty basic, and I think that is a that would be a general criticism of many of the songs on the album. Whereas the the writing on something like "Don't Look Back in Anger" or even "Live Forever," the chords are I'd say a good pastel more complex. Yes, I would definitely agree with you on that one. I eventually became deaf to it, but like the first five to eight listens, the vocal delivery of every the ending word on each line, he does that whine, that wow, yeah. wow, yeah. and it just it started to grate on me. And then around listen ten, I kind of went you know deaf to it, and I, I could just finally enjoy it. But it is a bit of a trope that kind of works its way. Maybe again, maybe that's just his singing style. It rubbed me a little bit. This became my least favorite song on the album. Definitely. After having to hear it so many times, I okay. started to hate this song. It never bothered me that much. I didn't feel that way. I think it's just an example of a dumb rock and roll song. And I mean that as neutrally as possible. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's it's fine. I imagine it would be a lot of fun live. I get why sure. it was getting a good response from the crowd. It's about the bragging. But again, it's I think our reactions are mostly about this distinction between calling this the 14th best album of all time and what you actually get on the tape. I get why putting this on when you've been hearing The Prodigy for the last 12 yeah. months would be exciting. <laughs> I, I get sure. that. Yeah, it's an expectation thing. I would agree. Let's jump on to the next song that we're going to touch on on our focus list. This is the song Live Forever. this wasn't the first single this is absolutely a hit song i think it's a great song and tom you already said it but it's a very well written song it stands out to me as the best written song on the record yeah melodically and otherwise i do remember catching this or i remember this catching my ear because it did land on on mtv 
in video form. That was the first time I had heard of Oasis, and I remember thinking it was pretty good. Although I don't think it made a huge splash. This must have been the first one that kind of broke through to America. This was definitely the first one that had some kind of play in America beyond just your sort of standard everybody gets played because you got a release type of play. Again, not only a good song, well produced. Yeah, the way that it starts with those drums, perfect, soaked in reverb drums, and then you get the guitar and the voice coming in, and they don't have that same reverb treatment. It's really mm-hmm. nice. It's really good. I wrote that the band all sounds really good on this track. Like the live band wall of sound, everyone gets their moments to shine. Yeah, the mix is really good. The swirling guitars, it really works here. There's great guitar stuff in this track, extra melodies. Like at the end, the, the little extra melody he plays, uh, the little descending melody over the the vamped super chorus. To me, this one is the actually it's the only track on Definitely Maybe that really lives up to the hype set by Don't Look Back in Anger, Wonderwall, and Champagne Supernova from the follow-up record. Yeah, I would agree. It seems the most mature of all their songs, definitely, in terms of songwriting. And had been written earlier than most of the songs on the album, too, which I find to be a little bit odd. Maybe they were, there's always a point in a band where you are writing for the live show. And then at some point you're like, I got to write for the album, not for the live show. This song probably would not have been as well received as rock and roll star in a club. I think people would have been like, that's a good song that I'd listen to at home. But right now I kind of want to hear bombastic, loud, you know, rock and roll star type of shit. Well, now I'll go back on what I I said before about not writing more (laughs) lyrics, because when you repeat lyrics again and again, it makes them that much easier to memorize and sing back to you. Ah. I think that's that's part of the strategy here. And just another comment that he has he finds his falsetto as part of the melody here as the peak of the melody. I don't recall him doing that anywhere else on the record. That just seems odd. Like once a singer kind of establishes that it stuck out to me as well. But remember, he didn't write it, and so Noel wrote it, and there is a version of Noel playing it on an acoustic guitar, and he does hit the falsetto, but it's not as very obviously you and I falsetto as Liam has to do it, because I think Mm. it's a little bit closer to Noel's range, and so it's also, we've talked about this before, as a songwriter, it is hard to understand your own range and start writing for that range it takes time to do that let alone understand someone else's range and start writing for that range you know yeah yeah it definitely takes a mature singer to have a song presented to them sit with it for a minute work on it a little bit and go here's what key it should be in for me the singer yes and when your singer doesn't play an instrument like liam i don't know what key is I, as I've said, right. I don't focus right. on the music stuff. I focus on the cool frontman <laughs> guy stuff. And so, you know, to his detriment, I think. I had to note that this was very 90s. There was just something about the production. I don't know if it was because it was Rickenbacker guitars or something, but when I heard this song, I immediately thought that this may have been on the So I Married an Axe Murderer soundtrack. I don't know <laughs> that it was, but it very much has that feel. And it's a feel that I love. It's it's an aesthetic that that I am totally uh, nostalgic for. And it just there's something about it that just reeks of the 90s, but it, in a good way. Well, I have to imagine it's because Oasis helped define what that 90s sound is. 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Even though they sure, were bigger sure. on the UK side of the pond, I think it's fair to say that they laid out a blueprint that many bands followed. Yeah, that's a good point. So, actually, fellow Creation Records band, the Boo Radleys, are on the So I Married an Axe Murderer soundtrack. And I believe we can all agree the peak of the soundtrack, which they tuck into the very end of it, is Two Princes by the Spin Doctors. No, no. Clearly the best song on the soundtrack. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Anyway. Yeah. Live Forever is a good song. The chord pattern's good. It's nothing crazy. I think it's like a one, two, four, five or something like that. It's a good chord pattern. It's nothing crazy. But that's where they are at their best. Nothing crazy. Put some good chords down and write a melody. You do that, you're going to succeed. Well, let's go on to the next song. Cigarettes and Alcohol. Again, I don't understand his pronunciation choices. Imagination, action. I don't get it. It doesn't, like, why are you doing that? It doesn't even have to have that in the cadence for it to work. Ugh, it's so weird. Did you also notice he didn't quite hit that first imagination note that he was intending to hit? <laughs> he doesn't hit a lot of those notes, but you're right. That is egregious. <laughs> This really starts, it sounds like bang a gong, get it on. To me. I wrote that down. Totally. totally. Yeah, yeah, very. I mean, it's guitars are cool, but it, it was so similar. I had a hard time getting over that. How are they not sued for this one, but they were sued for Shaker Maker? It just doesn't make sense. I think it's a good example of title first songwriting. This is a, you know, it's a winning title for people to hook there but it's a pretty boring song i would say overall i think it's, this is my super least favorite. boring it's yeah. honestly like they have a minute 30 of outro on a 430 Ooh. song basically yeah and it's so underdeveloped there's no crescendo out there's not even a cool guitar solo it just kind of fucking ends and 
why did you just kind of end a minute 30 after anything interesting in the song happened? You could have just ended it a minute 30 before and it would have been so much better. Again, they probably were like, oh, live, people are super into this. And they're probably, because you could smoke in clubs in the 90s, they're probably smoking and drinking and having a great time. And one of my favorite, I didn't even look this up in my research. I have a vivid memory of this from the 90s where Liam and Noel were fighting in Oasis, and it was on MTV News. Oh, Liam and Noel are fighting. And they canceled the show because Liam said, my throat's sore. Can't sing tonight. My throat's sore. And then smash cut to footage of him sitting in a club, chain-smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey out of a bottle. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) is that going to help your throat? Is that... I think that was for the MTV, MTV Unplugged session I read. And then he's, and he's there at the show heckling his brother who's taken over the <laughs> singer duties. Fucking oh Jesus God, Christ. That's okay. awesome. That's amazing. That is awesome. All right. I just I just remembered that image from my, of my head of him just like <laughs> sitting there with like a bunch of his groupies around him smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey from the pile. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not sure that one made it to air. You know, it's they, a couple of those got released as records, but not all of them. Rob, I do love the concept of title first song making. I was just talking about that with with my wife a couple days ago about it. It might have even been this song where I felt like they came up with a title or something that they thought would be a good chant at a live concert, right? Obviously, the crowd can scream cigarettes and alcohol, so it's probably where this came from. I mean, they're basically soccer hooligans, so you know, yeah, chanting right. is yeah. a big part. <laughs> yeah. Now, listen, I have no problem with title first songwriting. I've engaged sure. in it; it's it can yep. work very well. I don't have a problem with it, but I think you got to underbaked is what is a word Tom likes to use, and he's used it here. I think that's the appropriate terminology. I think it just should have stayed longer in the rock tumbler. Those melodies should have developed a little more. Maybe an outro or a super chorus or something could have developed for the end. Yeah, it's just a boring song. It's not worth the f- almost five minutes you have to listen to it. And title for a songwriting is great. The title got me excited. And then I heard the song and I was like, yeah, you didn't do much with it. You really could have done a lot more with this. Uh, let's go to the next song on our focus list, which is actually the song that Alan McGee was insisting was going to be the first single on the album. It was not the first single on the album or any of the singles released on the album, but it is the song Bring It On Down.
I actually really like this song. Yeah, this is my favorite find. This rocks. As Tom knows, when the floor Tom makes up a significant portion of the drum beat, I'm already halfway in. <laughs> You're sold. Yeah. <laughs> but it is driving. Like, the floor Tom is shorthand for Marshall, almost. And, you know, you get this yeah. kind of driving beat behind it. And it really escapes the issues that a lot of the other really rocking songs fall into. And mostly because the melody is better developed. And I kind of actually like the lyrics on this one. They have a point. They're like, we're fucking poor and pissed off and fuck you. I agree. It had good lyrical content. Yeah, I, it's it's my favorite. Other than Live Forever, it's my, definitely my favorite song on the record. And I'm glad I, I had never heard it before this week. But dear listeners, I recommend you go listen to the opening of this and picture that they're about to break in to take on me. Works perfectly. <laughs> Oh, no way, that's great. All right. Yeah, I had a note that I liked the line, I'll be scraping your life from the sole of my shoe. I thought that was a cool line. Yeah. But at this point in the album, th- everything kind of started to sound the same, just like generic rock and roll. Nothing was really sticking out to me. So yeah, this is a cool song. It chugs along a lot of energy, but it just, yeah, for me, it just felt like another rock song. I know we're right on the cusp of the the tape and CD era, but this probably would have been the second side opener, do you think, Tom? Of a tape? Probably. Track seven. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a maybe. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so another thing I had to go back and check, because I kind of agree with Adam, the focus list helped bring this one out a little bit more to me. I think I did notice it when I was going through the whole record, but I had to go back and check that this one doesn't blend from the previous song. Because it starts in a kind of harsh, you know, they're trying to get the realism of the band feedback, sound, yeah, the yeah, feedback yeah. sound, but it doesn't fade in like maybe I'm expecting it to. Or I thought they did that cool thing of connecting two songs that aren't really connected in the studio with, with a little bit of overlapping feedback, but they did not do that. Yeah, no, they didn't do that. The song before it is Supersonic, which was their first single. That was the one that they thought was going to propel them to superstardom. And they were right. It did propel them to superstardom. I think that the reason that this song raised itself above the rest of the material, kind of stuck its head above the parapet there, is because it has dynamics. It's not just guitar rocking, same volume, everything's driving the whole time. They kind of pull back a little bit at about a minute 45 in. It's kind of perfectly timed to break up what could have been really monotonous. The drums keep the driving feel, the bass and the guitars pull back. That vocal distortion, I'm not a huge fan of it overall, but it works. made it seem like there was something happening in the song. And if I had a big critique of a lot of their songs, I'm like, there's just fucking nothing happening in a lot of these songs. Or everything's happening all the time. You know, we talked about with Jamiroquai. It's just give me some dynamics, man. Yeah, and that's a knock on Noel specifically, that I think sometimes he's in love with the swirling, distorted, relatively minimalist. But when you add the distortion and the reverb and the echo on it, it becomes a maximalist guitar part. And he doesn't seem to know when to pull that back to give the song a little more dynamic. Because I'm under the impression they did record a lot of this 
effectively as a live band, but then Noel did more overdubs after the fact with guitar, right? Yeah, it was it was definitely like get the bed tracks down and then sounds like the other guys were way more checked out of the post live band recording process than Noel was. He was he does seem like the guy who was the most professional as far as wanting to be a serious musician and wanting to like really produce these albums. Because in every time they talk about a conversation with the record company, it's always Alan and Noel are talking. They're never like, oh, and then Bonehead says this. It's always Alan and Noel. It's the only two people that are really discussing the product. <sighs> you know, this is another long outro, but I do think that it at least kind of rocks its way out, which I like. The other ones just sort of petered out. This one rocked its way out. So mm. I would agree with you, Rob. In terms of the fines, this is the one I will probably listen to more so than the last song that we were going to talk about, which is the last song on the album, Married with Children. like this song i actually like this song too i wasn't are you being sarcastic no i actually really do like <laughs> okay, this song. Same, same here it was such a breath of fresh air like when i heard this the first time i thought that spotify did the thing where the album ends and it starts another band or another album so i went over to my phone i was like oh this is the last track finally something that is has a dynamic feel it's different i mean i know it sounds like a demo it's it's poorly recorded, but I like it when bands close albums with tunes like this. It's charming, and that's this is part of what made me say that they're familiar. They've done their homework of listening because mm-hmm. I think this is a a common trope. I think they got a good song out of it. Yeah, it's a simple song, but again, the subject matter there's there's something there that's a little interesting, right? And yeah, I think it's a successful song for sure. Totally, Adam. Did the out of tune guitar not completely bump you? It drove me a little nuts, but I was okay with okay. it. Yeah. <laughs> I found it charming. What about the completely pointless Jimi Hendrix chord at the very end in the fade-up? <laughs> well, now we got to drop that here. Goodbye, I'm going home. I feel like that also is kind of where the out-of-tuneness of the guitar gets highlighted the most. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a note in there that doesn't work. Right. Yeah, it's a little rough there. <laughs> and Liam's voice works on this. He doesn't have the best voice. He doesn't have the strongest voice, but it still works. This, to me, sounded like the most Beatles song on the album. This sounded like something that would have been on the White Album, basically. It's kind of like a weird little ditty. And fair. I dug it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's good. 
Now. Sorry, I might have one fact here. Ooh. I read somewhere that the guitar that is played on this is a Gretsch that was borrowed from Johnny Marr from the Smiths. Mm. Okay. Johnny Marr does do some weird guitar tuning shit, so maybe they were trying to get it back into tune. Yeah, right. just didn't quite get it. <laughs> the neck is all warped. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, right. Nice. All righty. On that note, we are going to vote and let you all know whether or not we really do think you need to hear this album before you die. I am actually very curious to hear what the votes are going to be. I do not know what either one of you is going to say. So let's throw it first over to Rob. Hey, guys. This is a little bit of a tough one because, like I said, I did ultimately enjoy the record. It grew on me. It's fun. And I see why. I sort of see why it made a splash. But I think when you look retrospectively, the more important Oasis album is the follow-up. So I do not think this is an absolute must-listen to understand Britpop or even to understand this band Oasis, which I think is a totally cromulent band <laughs> that one should listen to. So it's a no for me. All righty. Adam, let's hear it. All right. So I, I didn't spend the 90s in the UK, and I hate to go back to the Black Crows, but I did spend the 90s in the U.S., and I see so many similarities between these bands, from the dueling, feuding brothers to the idea of reclaiming a country's version of rock and roll. So I'm going to throw a curveball here, and to stay consistent, I think I'm going to say uh, yes. I think you need to hear this. Again, for, for our folks in the U.K., Maybe that'll uh, <laughs> save us from the ire that I'm sure we'll be uh, receiving soon. They started writing their emails as soon as we finished our tweets, Adam. You know that. <laughs> yeah, they, they have not reached here. Yeah, all right. <laughs> well, I, I honestly, if I had put money down, I would have gone for the opposite of both of your votes. So <laughs> this is Tom, and I got to say no. I really do. I don't think that this rises to the level of something that you absolutely must hear to understand a musical genre. I heard somebody basically say that when definitely maybe hit everything in the UK music scene was shit. And so this was just like a breath of fresh air and like, it's better than shit. I will say that certainly I don't think it's <laughs> shit, but I don't think it's gotta be Canon. I don't think it has to be something you need to hear. I would agree that What's the Story of Morning Glory is a better album. And maybe not a more important album, but I would listen to that one over definitely, maybe, definitely. So <laughs> there you have it. Two no's, one yes. You are not right. on the list. Oosh. Liam and Noel, don't come after us, please. I was going to say, Liam's going to come in and throw his weight around and beat the crap out of you, man. A little, well, little worried. Doesn't... Seem like he's got that much weight on him. He's I know. Big guy. <laughs> His main weapon is tweets. <laughs> Good thing I am not on Twitter. Anyway, that is the vote. Sorry to all of our UK fans. If you made it this far, we appreciate you sticking around while we shit on your childhood. <laughs> we have a few things left to do before we call it a night. I'm going to throw it over to Rob, who is going to reach his hand into the mailbag and pull out some missives. Thanks so much, Tom. And of course, Oasis fans, please tell us why we're wrong. Give us that context that we all agree we are missing some of. 
by writing us at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. But okay, here's some recent emails. Joe from Western Mass writes, Hello, complainers. First, please explain Boosh for this old man. Mm. I feel like we owe it to, to Joe. So my understanding of it is that it began as kind of a 70s Batman one of one of the sounds that it makes when you punch someone in the face like in a comic book you'd have a little star sign and it would say a syllable that would indicate Pow. that someone was punched All right Pow. Yeah. blam boosh yeah i believe that's where it started i want to say our friend james who's been a guest on the podcast started it or at least brought it to me and then i think over time it's become you know you got schooled or yeah. <laughs> how how would you put yeah. it tom I would basically put it like it's the equivalent of going, oh, you know, <laughs> right, when right, somebody yeah. when somebody ranks yeah. on you real hard. Somebody goes, oh, boosh. That's a but then boosh. it just happened to organically come up very early in our first episode where Jimmy Page made a comment about how Led Zeppelin came together and it was just like a lightning strike. Boosh. That's right. I remember that. Yes. We have to say boosh. We've been saying boosh forever. <laughs> I, so I think it must have a different UK meaning because there's also that sketch show with Ooh. Noel Noel Fielding called The Mighty Boosh. Yeah. So perhaps it's similar, but I don't recall having taken it from any of these other places. I recall it being like a comic book reference that we saw one time. Probably as UK listeners are going to write in and be like, it means vagina. Don't you know that? Right. <laughs> oh, God <laughs> damn <great>. it. Like, <laughs> Yeah, please, please let us know more about the history of Boosh. I mean, to be honest, I will read as many emails as you can send about the history of the word Boosh, dear listeners. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, Joe wanted to leave us with a few quick tidbits about some recent episodes. He said, Megadeth episode was so entertaining, but the album rocks. It's witless and ham-fisted. Writing, playing, oh. production, utter mm. dreck. Don't agree. <laughs> On T-Rex, he says, what you're hearing isn't quite Chuck Berry. Close. It's called Chicago Blues. Muddy Waters could have done Mambo, son. On mm. Astro Weeks, he says, indeed, Richard Davis's bass takes it from good to great, but give Van some credit. Astro Weeks busted open a door. Without Astro Weeks, he wouldn't have most of Bruce Springsteen's catalog. And he closes by saying, I wish you guys had short profiles. I can only consistently keep track of Phil. After so many episodes, I can picture him in my heart and mind, but the rest of you kind of blur together. Well, Joe, if you want to know what our what our goofy mugs look like while we're talking here on the old talk box, go over to YouTube, the Chop Unlimited's channel. We're posting videos there now, snippets of the podcast, the kind of story section where we tell the backstory of the artist that comes out a day before the regular podcast. So you can go ahead and subscribe and see what we all look like and understand why we've taken up podcasting as a career. <laughs> I like how he well actually does fucking twice and then he right. <laughs> Okay, and I have one more about Megadeth. Dave writes in, Hi guys, when I saw you're gonna talk about Rust in Peace, I made it a point to take time out of my day to listen. I've been into Megadeth since I was eleven or twelve, around the time Countdown to Extinction came out, and Rust in Peace quickly became my favorite record up until early adulthood. I'm also a guitarist, and I love both Marty Friedman and Chris Poland, who I believe Chris Poland was the guy who got kicked out of the band for selling Dave Mustaine's guitars for heroin. Yes. Yep, yep. He says, I think that more than being amazing players, they're both really unique and interesting players. 
Marty's picking technique is super weird, and Poland is a terrific and underrated jazz fusion guitarist who still puts out great work both as a solo player and with his band OHM. I always think of him as a cross between Jeff Beck and John McLaughlin. Hmm. Nice. Interesting. Okay, he wants to correct us on just a couple of our takes on Megadeth since he's a super fan. Dave Mustaine, while being a great guitarist, riff writer, and possessing the uncanny ability to, in quotes, sing and play those (laughs) rhythms live, he is not a virtuoso, exclamation point. If you listen closely to any Megadeth album, it's usually the other lead guitarist that's playing the best solos. Rust and Peace in particular, you'll notice that Dave tends to play fast, staccato, and sloppy, while Marty Friedman plays elegant, sweet-picked leads based on exotic scale patterns and chord tones. In my opinion, Dave isn't really any better at lead guitar than Kirk Hammett. Ah, Shots all right. Fire. Yeah. Boosh. <laughs> boosh that was indeed. Don't tell Dave Mustaine that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Closes by saying, love the show. And please, if you ever do another Megadeth episode, I'd be happy to join the conversation. Check out more of Chris Poland's fusion stuff. I think you all will love it. Thank you for that. Nice. Very cool. Well, you can write to us too. As I already said, 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Tell us any little thing. Tell us what we missed. Tell us where we're wrong. Or just give us a nice pat on the back. We love it all. Alrighty, thank you, Rob, and thank you to everyone who has written in. We always appreciate the feedback. One last thing to do. I've got to get the Albinator out of the corner. It's been fighting with its brother, the Albatron. They're just (laughs) fucking picking at each other, going back and forth, throwing bottles. One of them is super drunk. The other one is also super drunk. We're going to see what is going to come out of it. So, without any further ado... Drum roll, please. We will be listening to Oh, the album is The Beach Boys Today by Edgar Winter Group. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's also by the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys Today, Beach Boys Today. by the Beach Boys. I love how even in your joke, you referenced yet another pair of rock and roll brothers. Right. I feel like these Beach Boy brothers are maybe slightly more clean cut than the Oasis brothers. Yeah. Just a hair. Or the Winter Brothers, too. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) I assume that's not a compilation album. That just sounds like a compilation album. I don't know. It's on the list, so I think we're going to have to dive in and see. Oh, it's an eighth studio album by the Beach Boys. Let's see. I am not. Oh, no, actually, I'm familiar with these. Okay. (laughs) I was like, I've never heard any of these. No, I've heard these. Okay, there we go. (laughs) My parents listened to a lot of Beach Boys growing up. Nice. Post-Brian Wilson Beach Boys, too, which was not great. (laughs) A lot of Kokomo going on in my house. (laughs) A lot of Kokomo. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. So I'm excited for that. Next week, we will be doing the Beach Boys today. So everybody has their homework assignment. Listen to that a good 15, 20, 25 times. Oh, Tom, you forgot the exclamation point at the end of the album title. That's probably important to find it. Yes. The Beach Boys today. (laughs) 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 But that will be next week. For now, we're going to sign off for 1001 Album Complaints. I have been Tom. I'm Adam. And I'm Rob. Boosh. Boosh.